This morning's passage is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valour, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armour-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favour in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Our Father, we thank you for these great narratives in the Old Testament that teach us about the leader that we need as God's people. 
Help us, Lord, to listen attentively, uh, enlarge our affections for the Lord Jesus as we do so, and our commitment and devotion to him, conscious and reminded of his commitment and devotion to us. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel that we're studying this term on Sundays 9.30 and 11.30 are about the leader God's people need. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus, so why not just cut to the chase and spend our time in this precious term in one of the Gospels or one of the New Testament epistles? Because God has given us the whole Bible, and God uh, wants us to embrace the whole Bible and its relevance, and the whole Bible finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But one of the reasons we study a book like 1 Samuel, which is about leadership, is that we learn from that just why and how Jesus is the leader we need. One of the pivotal things about the book of 1 Samuel is written in a crisis time. In a crisis time, God's people might drift from their commitment to the leader they need. In a crisis time, people who are not Christians might have the rug pulled out from under their feet as to where they place their confidence in life. And these books, 1 and 2 Samuel, are warming our hearts as they lead us to reflect on all that we have in Jesus Christ as our leader. Now, chapter 16 is a pivotal chapter in the Bible because it is the chapter where God's King David God's King David, who points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. It is the chapter where God's King David is called, chosen, and anointed as king. It's a big chapter in the Bible. But it starts in a strange way, the first few verses. The first few verses are all about Samuel, God's prophet, grieving over Saul. Saul is the rejected king. Saul's uh, kingship is described in chapters 8 through 15. He has been rejected. And Samuel is grieving Saul, his rejection. So read with me verse 1 again. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And Samuel was grieving the fact that Saul's kingship had failed. It was God who had rejected Saul, but it was Samuel, God's prophet, who had to tell him. And that would have been very difficult for Samuel. I find the Bible here at this point just very real. Samuel had had a lot to do with Saul. He had anointed him as king. He had instructed him, invested in him, prayed for him, and then had to tell him that God had rejected him. And Samuel's reaction is understandable. Back in chapter 15, we read that he stayed up all night wrestling over this. But now God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. In other words, Samuel, you've got to move on. You've got to move on now. Just a little footnote that we'll return to in subsequent weeks. The king that God chooses comes from Bethlehem. But God is saying to Samuel, look, Samuel, I've rejected Saul as king. I know that's hard, 
but I want you now to go to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint one of his sons as king. Samuel then expresses his fear, verse 2, if Saul hears me, if Saul hears about this, he will kill me. And then the Lord is kind to Samuel. Take an animal to sacrifice, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. That's all you need to say, Samuel. I'll show you what to do when you get there. And then verses 4 and 5 describe how Samuel did what the Lord said. When he came to Bethlehem, the elders were afraid. Perhaps like Samuel, they were afraid of Saul or maybe afraid of Samuel, that he had come to pronounce God's judgment on them. Samuel assures them he has come in peace. Verse 5 ends with Jesse and his sons invited to the sacrifice. Now, that's verses 1 through 5. This is 1 Samuel 16, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. The anointing of David as God's king. So what on earth are these first five verses doing at the start of it? All this stuff about Samuel struggling to accept that, that God is now rejecting Saul and moving to David. And this stuff about Samuel taking a, a cow, an animal, to sacrifice just to kind of encourage him and get him to, to go to Jesse a, a bit. Why this relatively long introduction? Because Samuel's reaction here and the Lord's dealing with him has something important to say to God's people in whatever time they live. Here's how. There have been many times in history when God's people have invested their hopes and their lives in some plan, some structure, some institution, some heritage or leader, and it's gone wrong. And God says, that's finished, you've got to move on. And we don't argue with God's logic and his decision in our minds. We struggle with it in our hearts and in our wills. It's not straightforward to come to terms with something that is not worked out and move on to something else. Surely God doesn't mean that. Why? What is God doing? We have regrets. We hoped, we prayed, we prayed and prayed that God would see it right, sort it out, but he didn't. And God says move on, and we find that very hard, and we can so easily lose heart. It can happen in a local church. The local church is convicted that God is leading them to a particular direction. And then God shuts the door or the plans go wrong. And it's hard to move forward. Or a local church appoints who they think is a dynamic leader, an exciting time, an exciting future ahead. Initially, it's great, but then it goes wrong. The leader goes or the leader is told to go. And the church needs to move on, but it's not easy. We can so easily lose heart. And in our lives as individuals, it's not easy when things don't work out. Perhaps someone we've invested in, another Christian, a younger Christian, perhaps someone who's not a Christian, for years we've prayed for them, trying to lead them to faith in Jesus. It all comes to nothing. And when God says to us, Luke, you need to move on, it is very hard. We can lose hard. It is hard. It is costly. It is emotionally difficult to come to terms with the fact that God has told us to leave something, someone, and turn and face in a different direction. It's very hard to turn our heads. It's harder to turn our hearts. But at that moment of crisis, as God is telling us to say no to that and to look to a different future, what we do in that moment of crisis is vital. Samuel could have lost heart. Worse, worse than losing heart, he could have disobeyed God. 
What did he do? And here are two encouraging lessons for us. One, he poured out his heart to God. He did not shy back from saying to God how much he was struggling. Like David's didn't shy back from saying to God in the Psalms how much he was struggling. And number two, lesson for us, God graciously, lovingly helped him move on. He took the pressure off Samuel. Tell them you're inviting them to a sacrifice, and when you're there, I'll tell you what to do. This whole thing with a cow that he has to take to have a sacrifice in order that he is not frightened and that Jesse and his sons are not frightened, that has absolutely nothing to do with the progress of salvation and humanity. In this chapter, which is about the anointing of David as king, the prototype of God's forever king, the Lord Jesus, all this stuff about the cow that Samuel is told to take for the sacrifice is in the narrative at this critical point for one reason and one reason only, to encourage Samuel and to get him to a point where he is willing to obey God with a renewed heart. It's great. Now, what's the equivalent of the cow we are given not that now. I can resonate in my life. Many of you will share this. There are times when on a big, big picture scale, maybe in a country or in a local church sale or in my individual life where I have known that God has said no to that and you need to move on to this. My head is there, but my heart and my will and my feet are not there. And you pour out your anxiety to God Sometimes the way we pour out our anxiety and our frustration and our struggle to God is just silence. We don't pray. And God graciously does stuff and puts people into our lives. And for me, it's been individuals who encourage you, who say, come on, keep going, this is right, trust God, move on. And the key thing here in these opening verses is that Samuel, and I'm quoting from the text, did what the Lord commanded. I mean, that's the critical text, isn't it? In the end of the day, Samuel did what God said he should do. But in getting to that point, isn't it realistic? And isn't it real that he had to pour out his heart to God? His heart was troubled, he found it hard, and God very graciously and lovingly said, okay, Samuel, I'm going to help you. Here's what I'm going to do. Now, as the events of the chapter unfold, how David is chosen and anointed by Samuel as God's chosen king, the main point the writer is wanting to make, which is the first point you'll see on the outline there, the king God chooses is the leader we need. Now, the contrast is between Saul and David. Saul was not the king God's people need. And fundamental to that, fundamental to the fact that he was not the king that God's people need, is that Saul was the people's choice of king, not God's choice. He is the king God's people want, not the king God's people need. The king God's people need is the king God chooses to lead them. God is God. It is his choice. God is sovereign. His choice is perfect. He knows all. His choice is right and good. Now, this is a fundamental point 
God's choice as opposed to his people's choice. The leader we need is the leader God says we need. First step back in chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, you can flick back to that or on your phone. Chapter 8, verse 5. The elders of Israel, God's people, tell Samuel. Let me quote from chapter 8, verse 5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Appoint for us. In other words, appoint the leader we want. What kind of leader do we want? We want a king like all of the nations. You know, there is a huge pressure on the people of God then and now to be like the culture, the nations that we are in. It's a huge pressure. The phrase, like all the nations, is key. Their problem was not kingship as a request as such, but kingship like all the nations. But the people of God was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then there's a key text in chapter 13, verse 14. Let me read that, chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, Samuel, God's prophet, He's speaking to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And that phrase, chapter 13, verse 14, a man after his own heart, has a dimension of meaning that is not immediately obvious. It means God's choice of king. The king God's people need is God's choice. Saul, therefore, was not the king God's people need. Samuel, uh, David was. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, our text, the opening verse makes the same point. The second half of verse 1, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, the contrast is between chapter 8, verse 5, a point for us a king, and now chapter 16, verse 1, I have provided for myself a king. At this point, that the king we need, the leader we need, is God's choice of king, God's chosen king, is made again and again through God's unfolding revelation in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 2. I have said my king. On Zion, my holy hill, God says. Or Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God's chosen king. And when we get to the New Testament, we are reminded that the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of all these promises, is God's chosen king. So, for example, Luke 9, 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Luke 23, 35, he is the Christ of God, his chosen one or 1 Peter, and there are many more references. Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, the chosen and precious one. Now, it is clear from the text of 1 Samuel 16. It is clear from the context, chapters 8 through 15 in Saul. It is clear from the Psalms. It is clear from the prophets. It is clear from the gospels. It's clear from the epistles that the king God's people need is God's choice. Why does it matter so much? 
It's not because God is selfish, always wanting his way. It is because God is always right. It is because God knows who we need to lead us more than we know. It is because God can be absolutely trusted to give us the leader we need. No generation of the people of God is godly enough to discern and choose without bias the leader we need. Even if we chose Jesus, we would not any of us choose Jesus exactly as he is. We would not any of us choose Jesus to say everything that he said. What God is doing through all these long years of salvation history is to lead his people to the point when they come to an end of themselves, their own abilities, their own discernment, and look to God to provide the leader they need. And for us, in our period of salvation history, we need this kind of narrative that we look to Jesus for the leader that he actually is, not the leader that we have changed him into in our minds. And we love him more, and we long for him more, and we stand at his side with a deeper degree of conviction. The king God chooses is the leader we need. We are saved by grace. It is not our doing. We are changed by grace. It is not our doing. We will be glorified by grace. It is not our doing. The cross is an act of grace, and the man who hanged on that cross was given to us as an act of grace, chosen out of eternity by God the Father. Now, the second heading, in choosing his king, God looks at the heart. In choosing his king, God looks at the heart. The issue here is about how God goes about choosing his king, and the intended contrast is how the people of God chose Saul. Back in chapters 8 through 15, which describes the kingship of Saul, the writer draws repeated attention to Saul's appearance, particularly his height. So, for example, chapter 9 and verse 2, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. In chapter 10, verse 23, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. The point is that Saul was an impressive-looking man, an impressive-looking leader. In our culture, it might not be height. It might be credentials, background, ability, uh, charisma, uh, so on and so forth. The point is, Saul looks like a leader. And remember, God's people wanted a leader like the nations. Saul, with his high stature, looked awfully like one of the leaders of the surrounding nations, the Philistines, the enemies of God, Goliath. We'll meet Goliath next week. Goliath was six cubits in a span, nine foot six tall. He was a tall man. Saul was a tall man. They looked like the kind of people you would need to lead you in a crisis. Back to 1 Samuel 16. Let's pick up verse 6. Jesse and his sons have come to Samuel. Notice Samuel's immediate instincts. We might have thought he would have learned, but no, verse 6. When they, the sons of Jesse, came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab. Imagine Eliab walking into the room. He, one must assume, was tall, dark, handsome, strong, all the rest of it. Jesse's eldest son, and we can assume impressive in appearance. Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
You see, when you look with your eyes, you say, surely God must be doing that with that person there. Surely he is the one. Surely he is the one to lead us. Surely it must be in this way that God will lead us through the crisis. And then the critical verse, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on their heart. In choosing their leader, God's people looked at the outward appearance. Did they look like a leader? To be fair, that's all they were able to see. We can't see inside a person. All we can see is what our eyes see. But God sees differently. He has divine sight. He is able to see what someone's heart is like. Everything about us as humanity is wired by sight and sense. We cannot trust our instincts to choose wisely. Man Luke puts on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab, and it wasn't him. He looked apart, but God looked at his heart, and he wasn't the one. Then Shammah, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? How would Samuel have said it? He said, come on, what? what? What's the answer? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, I have no doubt that Jesse loved his youngest son, David. He had nothing against him. Here's the point. It just never, ever crossed his mind that his boy David could be God's chosen king because he couldn't see it. It never crossed his mind. David was overlooked. God's chosen leader then was overlooked and still is. Now, in our world today as Christians, we know and we believe with all our hearts that the leader humanity desperately needs is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ in the mix of leadership in our world today is overlooked. People look to this person or that person who are doing their best and we would do no better but the only person who can lead us out of the crisis that faces humanity in the world is Jesus who is habitually overlooked. He is overlooked because he does not look the part. How? Because he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. That hardly looks the part for the birth of a king. And he was hung on a cross the epitome of weakness. And it's overlooked. But the real danger is when God's people in a crisis overlook their leader. 
And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Uh, that's a great little, uh, God's word sometimes is amusing. Uh, and why David is handsome, so that we don't come to any daft conclusions that uh, the people that God chooses to lead need to be short and ugly, or tall and ugly. It's perfectly plausible that David is tall, dark, and handsome, but it's not the point. God is not concerned with the outward appearance. God is concerned with the heart. And only God can truly see into the heart of the one he will ask to lead. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. He is my chosen king. I can see into his heart. He is the right person to be my chosen king. He is the king my people need. Nobody else would have chosen that day, David that day. That's the point. None of us would have chosen David that day, not the rest of his brothers, not his fathers, not even God's prophet Samuel. And if you think that you would have chosen more wisely than God's prophet Samuel, well, not even David, the anointed, would have chosen himself. In choosing his king, God looks at the heart. No one would have chosen Jesus born in a stable in Bethlehem, to be God's forever king. No one would have chosen someone who came from Nazareth to be God's forever king. Just like David, the Lord Jesus, David's greatest son, was God's chosen king because God looked at the heart, not the outward appearance. One of the most striking and encouraging prophecies is Isaiah's description of the Lord's servant. This is your Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Jesus was nothing to the eye. Does that ever strike you? He's being slightly irreverent. He was nothing to look at when he lived on the earth. He was despised and rejected. I mean, think of your King Jesus. He was nothing to look at in life. And at the end of his life, that man who was nothing to look at was smeared with blood and sweat and naked and dying. But he had a righteous heart. And he always obeyed God. It was his heart that took him to the cross. Do not be fooled by appearances. Next, what is it about God's, about David's heart that God chose him to be his king? God looked at his heart and therefore chose him, but what was it that God saw in his heart to choose him? The heart of God's chosen king accords with God's own heart. That's the third point. What does that mean? It means that there is an affinity between God and his chosen leader with respect to the outworking of the will of God. What does that mean for the leader? It means that the leader is obedient to God's word. 
Remember the key lessons we learned from looking at Saul's kingship, the reasons he was the wrong leader. First, he was the people's choice, not God's. Second, he did not obey God's word. And if the leader does not obey God's word, then that leader comes between God and his people in a detrimental way, in a way that leads them away from God rather than accordance with the will of God. Saul did not obey God, and it all fell apart for God's people. The only leader God's people can rely on, not least in a crisis, can have absolute assurance in as a leader who always obeys God's word. And God saw into David's heart, and he saw a man who would obey God's word. And we see, as the narrative progresses, some extraordinary examples of that. Not least next week, David goes out to face Goliath. He, he strips off his armor. He goes out completely vulnerable, trusting absolutely in the promises of God and in his power. And God saw that in David's heart, a man of obedience. But David failed, though, didn't he? He did disobey God in different ways. So what do we make of that? Did God really choose David because of his obedient heart? Yes, he did. And we see in David some extraordinary examples of obedience to God. But David was not the ultimate leader, nor was Jonathan his son, nor was Solomon. Nor was Jonathan, Saul's son, nor Solomon, David's son. The heart of God's chosen leader accords with God's heart ultimately in one man and in one man only, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is where we see that most supremely as we gather around the Lord's table. Only someone with an obedient heart like Jesus would have obeyed God's will to go to the cross. Even Jesus was taken to the extreme of his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane to submit to his Father's will. Fourth and finally, God's chosen king is a spirit-filled servant. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. It will be a long time before David actually becomes king. There will be many struggles before God's chosen king is crowned. He will suffer, not least at the hands of Saul, the king he has replaced. And there will be much for us to learn about the suffering of God's king through the latter chapters of 1 Samuel. David's suffering expressed in the Psalms, for example, written during this period, shed light on the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus is a suffering servant. God's king is a suffering servant. And here, at the moment of the anointing of the king, who points us more than any other king to the forever king, the Lord Jesus, what do we see this king doing? Immediately he is anointed. He enters in to the service of Saul. And with that service, there will come many years of suffering before he is crowned. And again, the writer intends us to contrast Saul and David. The reasons Saul was the wrong leader one, that he was the people's choice, not God. Second, that he did not obey God's word. Third, that he took from God's people, not served them. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 12 or 13 times, Samuel says, the leader you have chosen will take, 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 
take, take, take, take. And what does David, God's king, do? He gives, gives, gives. He serves, he serves, he serves. The spirit of God that filled David is contrasted with an evil spirit from God that came upon Saul. Who can help me, Saul asks. One of his servants says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse from Bethlehem who can help you. David is summoned. Key verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. God's chosen king is a servant king. And the one person who can comfort Saul in his anguish is God's chosen king. Saul loved David, but tragically that love will turn to hatred. Through the rest of 1 Samuel, Saul tries to kill David. God intervenes every time, so Saul has no opportunity. David, the true king, has many opportunities to kill Saul, but he never takes them. He loves Saul to the last. And of course, down through salvation history, Jesus enters human history. Mark chapter 1, what does God say? You are my son, you are my king. Whom I love, that's Isaiah 42, my servant. And Jesus then is baptized. The signal that he has come to hang on a cross. And a key verse in Mark's gospel Mark 10, 45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And these narratives in 1 Samuel, written in a time of crisis for God's people, with lots of bad examples, and David and his choice and his heart and his obedience, enlarge our affections as Christians for the one man in whom it all is fulfilled, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you and I sit with face masks on in the middle of a crisis in our world, the one person you need as your leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. For he alone is articulate in life, in death, and for eternity. And to have him is to have everything we need. And that is a wonderful thing and it may not fill your heart with joy and gladness. It depends what your circumstances are and how you are wired. But objectively, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And it gives us peace and assurance and confidence. And we can trust his word. And we can trust him to do what is right. And we can trust him in the middle of every crisis, large or small. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning from 1 Samuel. Thank you for all that it teaches us about the leader we need, how it moves our hearts to Jesus, how it enlarges our conception and vision of him. Help us now as we come to the Lord's table to draw all these strands together and to look to the leader that you have provided for us, and to look to him as he hangs on a cross, his appearance disfigured, blood 
staining his body, bruised and battered, and suffering the terrible punishment of crucifixion and worse still, the terrible wrath of God. And yet, he has a righteous heart and he died for us. And he reigns and he rules as our leader. Bring us close, closer to him now, we ask. Standing by his side, as he stands by our side, for Jesus' sake.